Shall we get started? Welcome everyone this morning. I realise I've got the sun in my eyes, I shouldn't complain about that. Uh, it's lovely. Um, to this uh, discussion of the Fixed Land Parliaments Act, the future of it, and the power to call early elections. Now, we've got a bit of a reunion going on here with some of the people responsible for the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Um, but we also want to get into a discussion about what next, because the Conservative Party have said in their manifesto and in the Queen's speech that they intend to repeal the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Um, it was passed in 2011, I'm sure most people in this room know, uh, by the coalition government and uh, put the power of the, of the Prime Minister to seek a dissolution uh, um, away from the Prime Minister. But it also obviously was responsible for fixed terms. It also has led to a, a controversial discussion last uh, autumn about the power also to vote no confidence in the government and its possible responsibility for the sort of uh, difficulties, shall I say, that we found ourselves in in the autumn. So we're going to talk about all of that, whether it was responsible and what should happen next. Um, but we're going to start, uh, I'm going to quick, quickly go through our panel. We've got Mark Harper here on the far left. He was Minister for the Constitution when the Act was brought in. He later served as Chief Whip from the May 2015 general election until the end of David Cameron's premiership. Um, Professor Meg Russell, uh, Professor of British and Comparative Politics and Director of the Constitution Unit at UCL, though she hardly needs an introduction. Uh, I've also got Matthew Hanney, who is now a partner at Flint Go uh, Global, uh, but was special advisor to Nick Clegg during the coalition and was also closely involved in the origins <coughs> of the Act. And then Raphael Hogarth, who is an associate here at the Institute, as well as a visiting lecture, lecturer in public <coughs> law at City Law School. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Matthew, to talk about the origins of the Act. Uh, it's often described as a sort of... Uh, the Lib Dems responsible for it in order to avoid the Conservatives stuffing them out of government too early. Uh, what was the reasons for it and you know, does it deserve the sort of bad press it's been getting recently? Um, I think there's definitely some truth to that um, and I, I'm not going to sit here and say that wasn't a motivating factor on our side um, and I think that sense of uh, you know, you know, mild paranoia that the Prime Minister could just wake up one day and decide to have an election um, even whilst we were in government, was certainly a kind of element of uh, the thought process behind our side of it. Um, but I think it would be to do ourselves a disservice to say that was, you know, the only reason. Uh, you know, it was a much, you know, it had been long thought about, not least by some of the people in the room here, um, as part of a much wider kind of constitutional reform package of the Liberal Democrats, which I'm sure people are all too familiar with in this room. Um, and I think people saw it as an opportunity to get that part of that, the jigsaw in place in a way that, you know, famously, you know, was attractive to George Osborne and other Conservatives, you know, that sense of kind of guaranteeing five years in office. Um, so I think there was a sense that, you know, kind of the stars had aligned so that we could do a piece of constitutional form that would give power to Parliament, move it away from the executive in a way that was sort of politically attractive or at least acceptable to one of the main parties in, 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 that we were then in government with. And as I think we saw with other um, attempted pieces of constitutional reform that we won't dwell on here today, if you can't persuade one of the main parties that it's to their at least short-term political advantage or at least acceptability, you're going to struggle to get it over the line. Um, I mean, I think in terms of does it deserve the, the bad press, um, I mean, look, uh, you know, um, a lot of what happened in the last 
year was not about what powers were in place that had been put in place by the coalition government. It was about the electoral maths and about the situation in Parliament. And I think you know, the fixed-term Parliament Act became a kind of a proxy um, argument for what was weakness elsewhere. Um, but so I'd say that, that what was important for us about what we were trying to do with the Fixed-Term Parliament Act as well, as well as that short-term political game I talked about, was laying a foundations for what you then see as wider constitutional form in terms of if you know you're on a fixed cycle in Parliament, in Commons, it then makes more sense if you then move to laws of form. It then makes more sense if you move to even you know, a more federal system where you have you know, stronger different parliaments, different devolved administrations. So all of that would kind of stack up from a, you know, a Liberal Democrat, from a constitutional form perspective. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it's difficult now because it's sort of, it's, it's not necessarily alone, there were other successes um, that, that, that some of us managed together. Um, but it stands quite sort of isolated because obviously you've, you know, you've moved quite a long way towards empowering the executive. Um, as a, disempowering the executive, arguably empowering Parliament, and particularly the sort of, you know, a supermajority function, um, and as you've alluded to, you know, tighter de definitions on, you know, what constitutes confidence. Um, those are powers which sit uncomfortably with where, you know, we bluntly have landed now. So, look, it was of its era. Um, it was done for a specific reason. At that time, it was also done in the hope that it would be the start of a lot more. Um, that hope has probably not entirely been fulfilled. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Mark, I'm actually going to come to you now because uh, I want to know, I mean, you were the minister effectively responsible for taking this through. Did it have adequate scrutiny? Could we have foreseen all the things that you know, came up later, some of the complications around how the 14-day period would go, uh, what might happen during that time? Well, those are two different questions. So uh, let me just, a slightly different perspective on, on what Matthew said. So I think certainly my understanding, and I, I wasn't involved in the coalition negotiations, but I think my understanding is the primary reason for, for the Act was because the Liberal Democrats were worried that um, the Prime Minister, the then Prime Minister, would call an election at a moment that it was electorally convenient to do so. And they wanted to make sure the coalition was, was locked together for the Parliament, which was a perfectly reasonable thing for them to be concerned about and that effectively was the primary purpose of the act and actually if you're going to judge it by that test um, it, it was it served its purpose because the the parliament between 2010 and 2015 did run its full term and I would argue and I, and I think actually and certainly I think Nick Clegg would argue and, and I think most Liberal Democrats who were in government then would argue that that government delivered its primary purpose uh, that it was formed to solve which was to deal with the financial crisis we had in the public finance, the state of the public finances, and take difficult decisions, necessary difficult decisions, to stabilise the public finances and get those back into shape. And I think that was, I think, reflected by the result in 2015. Um, it was a rather disproportionate thanking by the electorate of the parties in government, and we did rather better than the Liberal Democrats did, but, um, but I think the government was judged to have fulfilled its central purpose. So I think to that extent, the Act did what it was supposed to do. You had two questions. One was, did it get proper scrutiny? Well, it certainly as the Minister taking it through. So for those that don't know, um, Nick Clegg, as the Deputy Prime Minister, owned the, the constitutional brief at the time. And obviously he was a Liberal Democrat. So David Cameron asked me, as a Conservative, I was effectively sometimes known as the 
um, Conservative in the Nick Clegg department. Uh, I was the one that actually took the legislation through Parliament. It certainly felt like it got well scrutinised. It was all done on the floor of the House of Commons. And I think I'm right in saying we did give it sufficient time that I think I remember that we didn't even use some of the time at the end of its House of Commons stages because kind of actually everyone ran out of puff. It wasn't a very long piece of legislation, although it was quite significant. And the House of Lords made some changes to it, which we accepted. So, for example, the, the piece on the form of a no-confidence motion that would trigger a general election that has to be in a very specific set of prescribed words, that wasn't in the original drafting of the Act. That was inserted by the House of Lords, and we accepted that um, those changes that they'd made. So I think it did get properly scrutinised. Second, more interesting part of your question is, did we foresee every possible eventuality that took place last year? The answer is no, we didn't. I mean, this is one of the things maybe people have questions about. The, the no-confidence piece on which much was written, it's worth just saying, it, it didn't set out, here are all the ways in which a government can lose the confidence of Parliament. It, it was very narrow. It was, in what circumstances are you able to have an election? Mm. It didn't say, in what circumstances is, are you able to have a change of government? It mm. said, when can you have an election? And it, and it was a set of prescribed circumstances, and we can talk about that in the 14-day period. Part of the reason why we didn't make it very prescriptive was because actually we were humble enough to recognise we couldn't possibly foresee every eventuality. And when I was asked what was supposed to happen in the 14-day period, I've always said, uh, that will depend on the political um, circumstances at the time. Um, and clearly, we've had a set of circumstances last year, which I certainly didn't forecast back in 2010-11, and I don't think anybody did, in terms of uh, Brexit being something that caused differences of opinion in parties as well as between parties, um, as, as a leader of the opposition who was... Um, generally thought by many in his own party not to be someone fit to be Prime Minister, which clearly changed the dynamics of how Parliament played out. Um, you can argue they all made a very sensible decision, because that was clearly the decision the public made when they were asked to make a judgment. But I think that had a big impact on how it all worked in Parliament. So I think it did get a lot of scrutiny, but you can't, any of these changes you can't foresee. Mm. So, so my sort of closing bit of my opening remarks would be, I think I welcome what we said in our manifesto, which is we've got a set of changes we've said we're going to make to constitutional matters, including this. But we've also said we're in the first year we're going to set up a, a commission to look at all of these matters and then bring back proposals which we can think about. One of the luxuries, if you like, um, obviously depending on people's political views, they view this in different levels of thrill and optimism, but one of the advantages of having won a significant working majority is that I think I can say, without fear of contradiction, unless something very strange happens, we're not going to have a general election for four and a half, five years. So actually, we've got some time. You know, the public's priorities are not constitutional reform. They're about things like the National Health Service and schools, and obviously, given the appalling events of the weekend, security. We can actually take some time to set up a, a, a commission with people that are expert in these areas. They can consider the matter. They can listen to a number of the people in this room and you can run events on it and we can actually take some time to properly think about these, bring forward proposals um, and take them through Parliament, perhaps with pre-legislative scrutiny and do it in a very careful, thoughtful way because there's no particular urgency to deal with it in the first year, as there was, frankly, when the coalition was formed. And I think this particular measure 
there was a real sense that it needed to be done quickly to give particularly the junior coalition partner the security that the coalition would see through the full term. We have already started holding events on what that commission might uh, call, but actually thinking about whether or not it will be in this first year is quite a useful insight. Meg, we, um, you and I have discussed this act endlessly over the course of the last year, so I feel a bit um, <coughs> reluctant to ask you to talk about it again. But let's move <laughs> forward. Um, you know, what should we think, be thinking about now in terms of Fixed Term Parliament Act? Well, I think um, I would give a plug to the event that you held yesterday on the Constitution Commission, which was an excellent event. Um, and your contribution was an excellent contribution. Thank you very much. You started by, started by saying, what is the problem here that we're trying to fix? Um, and I think we need to focus on that. If we ask, what does the Fixed Term Parliaments Act do? It does a number of things. It fixes the term of parliaments, um, for one thing. It, it removes from the Prime Minister mm. the power to call an election unilaterally, an early election unilaterally, and gives that power to Parliament. Um, and in doing so, it introduced a supermajority requirement in Parliament for the first time to require that two-thirds had to approve um, his request for an election. It then included other things like the 14-day period um, and giving the, keeping the Prime Minister's power to determine when the election would be held, um, which have proved to be somewhat problematic. Um, so there are undoubtedly problematic things um, in the Act. But if you go back to the basic principles that, that, that I just um, indicated, um, the length of Parliament ha clearly hasn't been very successfully fixed, uh, given the 2017 and 2019 elections. And the supermajority requirement actually uh, looks shot to pieces. Um, mm. We have seen that you cannot impose a supermajority in a system which relies on parliamentary sovereignty, because if necessary, Parliament can, by a simple majority, just override it through a new statute. So those two things don't look great. But there is a core principle that remains, I think, of whether the Prime Minister should be able to call elections without asking Parliament for its approval. Um, and actually, um, I think that has held rather well. We saw in September, for the first time ever, Parliament denying the Prime Minister a request to hold a general election, and it did it again in October. What would have happened if Parliament hadn't had that power? Well, the thing that people feared is that we would have had a no-deal Brexit occurring in the middle of a general election campaign. And I don't think there are many, very many people who think that would have been a great outcome. Um, so I think there is an important question of principle which we need to not lose in the middle of all of this, which is who should have the power to call elections and whether we really want to give back uh, to the Prime Minister this um, unfettered power. I think Raphael will talk a bit about how it's technically uh, difficult to simply wind the clock back. Most people agree you can't simply uh, reinstate uh, a prerogative power. Um, but I think also, to go back on the principle, to me, would be a retrograde step. Um, it would be pushing in the opposite direction to quite a lot of developments and quite a lot of debates over not just the last few years, but decades, about the need to regulate prerogative powers and bring them increasingly under the control of Parliament. Um, you look at things like the war power, treaty-making powers, etc. That's been very much the direction that we have been moving in. Um, it would also put us back out of step with international norms, where the norm is internationally that you have 
fixed terms but with a degree of flexibility and the flexibility is based on parliamentary approval of early elections. Um, so <clears throat> if you, from where we are now, if you accept that the two-thirds majority is shot to pieces, then the Prime Minister basically has nothing to worry about with the majority that he has. Mm -hmm. He can get a general election whenever he wants with this House of Commons, I assume, unless he does something really terrible. Um, so the urgency um, that might have been felt at the time the manifesto was, writ was written, I think, is, is gone. Um, so the key question going forward is whether we um, want to stick to the principle of Parliament having control and how to implement that in legislation. Um, it's unfortunate, I think. There are things about the process on this legislation that are unfortunate. One is, as we've just discussed, that it looked like a short-term political fix for the coalition. But it was, in fact, uh, a matter of principle that had been debated for years. It was actually in the Labour Party's manifesto in 2010 that we should have fixed-term parliaments, as well as the Lib Dem manifesto. And it is a mystery to me why the Labour Party put repeal in its 2019 manifesto, given that it used the power rather effectively uh, back in the autumn. One of the things that has been suggested is that the removal of uh, the government's ability to turn... Um, uh, substantive policy questions into mm. matters of confidence is a problem and mm. that this occurred over Brexit. I find this actually a strange argument. Um, I'm not sure that if Theresa May had been able to threaten a general election over Brexit that that would have been effective. I think the rebels against her were pretty determined. I think the opposition <laughs> looked extremely weak and not very frightening, so if there had been a general election. And also it seems to me that's somewhat of an admission uh, on the part of those who opposed her, who included at the time the Prime Minister, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Priti Patel and others, that maybe they did the wrong thing. Are they suggesting that had she threatened a general election they would have supported her? Because that rather suggests that they, they could have supported her if they wanted to. Um, there are things about the process which I wanted to talk about, but um, let's come back to those because I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. I'm sure we can get... The process through. last time was not great and next time we need to do better, but Raphael might... I want to talk about those same things. All right, well, let's see about that. Uh, Raphael, um, so two things we want you to cover then. Uh, what do they have to do if they're going to repeal this? Is Meg right? There's controversy about, or at least questions about what manner they would do. And also, what are the risks? Well, I, th I think there are two broad directions of travel in which we could go uh, in terms of how to replace the FTPA. Uh, and basically, they are, firstly, that you could try to get as close as you can to reviving the old system, turning, turning back the clock, going back to the old prerogative. Uh, and secondly, you could try to design a new statutory power on the part of the Prime Minister uh, to call general elections subject <coughs> to whatever uh, sort of caveats or processes Parliament wanted to attach to that power. Um, and I think there are some sort of pros and cons of each approach and definitely some risks to each approach. When you're thinking about reviving the old prerogative, I, I think one of the advantages to that is basically that it's quite familiar. Um, we've had a lot of constitutional flux uh, and lots of new systems where we're quite, un quite uncertain about how they work. To some extent, we at least know how the old prerogative of dissolution works. The Prime Minister uh, asks the monarch for a dissolution and by and large the monarch says yes. Um, the second advantage, you might say, to going back to the old prerogative system uh, is that there's some, there's some sort of check on the Prime Minister's power to call an election insofar as the Prime Minister does have to 
ask the monarch. Um, and you, know, you, you might really want there to be some sort of check there, because as Meg says, um, elections can be called in, a, in an abusive way. You might think that calling an election in the midst of some major economic shock or crisis was abusive. Uh, some constitutional scholars in the past have given the example of calling an election just after you've had an election, um, as soon as you lose on a Queen's speech, for instance. Um, but there are some disadvantages to that prerogative approach as well. One of them, you know, which, which Meg and Kath both mentioned, is that some people think it's impossible to revive the old prerogative. Um, and the basic argument here uh, is that the nature of prerogative power is that it's sort of historical artifact, and the nature of a historical artifact is that once you've destroyed a historical artifact, you can't make a new historical artifact. It wouldn't be a historical artifact anymore. Um, <laughs> well, I think, it, you know, it's certainly true that a bare repeal of the Act wouldn't work. You can't just say the FTB is hereby repealed and you go back to the old system um, because of other statutory provisions that say that uh, just repealing a law doesn't get you back to the position you were in before. Um, but Parliament could say expressly that it wanted to uh, restore the prerogative. And I think you know, whether that would technically be a prerogative power or a statutory power is open to debate. But uh, I think everybody would essentially try to construe the intention of Parliament there, and if it said it wanted the old prerogative, it would get the old prerogative uh, in one way or another. But I think the second more problematic disadvantage to this prerogative approach is that the Queen isn't a very good check on the power. Um, and you might think that for two reasons. First of all, well, she never says no. I mean, no monarch ever says no. Uh, and, you know, we saw in the prorogation fiasco last year that even in conditions where you might think that a monarch has very strong arguments for saying no to the Prime Minister with this sort of situation. They'll be very, very reluctant to do so because they don't want to get dragged into politics. Um, and the second objection to the Queen as the check is you might just think that the monarch is an illegitimate check on the exercise of that power because this is a 21st century democracy uh, and by and large hereditary monarchs don't wield that sort of important power over the operation of your democracy. So, you know, the other approach that you might adopt is say, forget the Queen, forget the prerogative, um, let's just create a new statutory power for the PM to dissolve. And you know, we know that's possible, uh, and it gets round some of these worries about the Queen, but again, you just have to think about this question. In that case, what is the check on the power? Uh, and you know, some people have argued, uh, Robert Craig, who's sitting in the second row, has argued uh, that one way you could put a check on that power is by making it subject to a parliamentary vote by simple majority in the House of Commons. Um, if you don't do something like that, then I, I think there is a genuine risk that it's open to the kind of abusive use that we've been talking about. And I think the government needs to think about the fact that one day a prime minister wielding that power is not going to be a prime minister from the Conservative Party. Uh, and you know, collectively, we need to make sure that there is some kind of appropriate democratic check there. Okay, I want to delve into that issue because this is, um, as Meg said, primarily this was an act about the power to call early elections. So Mark, can I go to you? Because a lot of the debate last year was about the power of the executive versus the power of parliament. I mean, ultimately, should this be something that the prime minister can wield and use whenever or should it remain something that parliament have a veto over? Well, I think it does come back to the, there's two aspects to that. I think it comes back to the point Raphael said, that the, all the advice I got at the time was in line with what he said about prerogative powers. Once you've um, extinguished them, yeah. they don't just come back when you repeal legislation. Um, so you can't just repeal the legislation in the status quo and you just sort of 
pops back into place. So the real, the real question is whether you construct the old model in a, in a statutory way, so you effectively give the Prime Minister the ability to either effectively authorise a dissolution himself or go through the old model of seeking one from the Queen and having her do it, but effectively as a constitutional monarch she would all say yes, um, or whether you keep in place the, the parliamentary uh, check <coughs> Um, and whether that's just a simple majority, because as we've, as we've seen, if, if you've got the ability to pass... The, so the two-thirds was a check in the coalition mm. um, because the Conservative Party by itself couldn't, didn't have a majority in Parliament, so it couldn't pass the legislation. That was the point of the two-thirds. And it was two-thirds because that was set at a level which, if you went back over quite a lot of history, mm. you know, governments generally didn't get two-thirds of votes in Parliament, so it was, it was broadly a, to stop a single party being able to deliver it. But because in our system you can't entrench constitutional legislation, um, it isn't really a check at all. So you might just say, give the Prime Minister the power to seek a dissolution, and it has to be approved by a majority in Parliament, and then, and then frankly, as long as you've got a majority, um, you're going to have an election. So you have that formal parliamentary check, but actually, pr for all practical purposes, it's pretty much back at the status quo ante. That might well be where we, we end up, given the most recent set of events was the frustration last year. And, and I don't think it was just, I don't think it was just Conservatives that were rather frustrated by the events of last year. I don't think sort of the last two years of constitutional shenanigans, the public felt that was a, a good, you know, um, operation <coughs> in Parliament particularly. And I think by the time we had the election in December, I think people wanted a clear outcome I think is why we had such a clear result. Um, so that, I, I suspect that's where we may well be going. But as I said, I think at the beginning, one of the things we do need to do, given you know, we couldn't have foreseen all the events of last year, I do think it's worth just thinking these things through and what the consequences are. Mm. And there are also some, some other areas of change that were foreshadowed in our manifesto. So actually, I do think the approach of sometime in the next year setting up this commission and actually looking at all of these things together in a, in a sort of careful way and bringing them back. And as I said, potentially perhaps bringing forward some proposals, doing pre-legislative scrutiny on them and thinking them through is probably very sensible rather than immediately me rushing to, here's the answer. Mm. Um, so we've, we've indicated we're going to change the Act. That's mm. a clear commitment. Mm. And actually, I think most people would agree that, you know, I think even Meg broadly welcoming the principle of fixture of parliament. Um, <laughs> no, but, but even you, you saying you broadly welcome the, the Act and some of the things it's done, recognise that there Absolutely. are certain aspects of it yep. that require change. Yep. So given there's a general sense that it requires change and we've committed to make change, I think it makes sense to try and work out a way that that commands as much support as possible. Mm -hmm. So I think the careful, thoughtful way we've set that out, I think is the right approach and therefore that's why although it's tempting to do so, it's better, I think, not just to rush to getting into solution space um, immediately. Sure, Meg, so we've got time to do scrutiny on this. What, what, what scrutiny does it need? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I would actually say, if you wind back, and I, I went and looked at this in preparation for today's event, and some of these events are, are, of 10 years ago I had forgotten, and you may have done as well, although you were right at the heart no, of it. No, I haven't. But, <laughs> <laughs> burned onto your memory. What, some of the problems that are in the Act, I think, are a result of the poor process that it went through. I mean, it started, the idea started, as I said, as a sort of principled approach from a number of people, uh, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, Tony Wright had a private member's bill on it, there was lots of talk of fixing, fixing terms. 
it became a kind of political fix between uh, the coalition partners. The coalition agreement proposed that the threshold should be 55%, which was, looked like it had been plucked out of thin air just in order to kind of gerrymander the result based on the uh, numbers in Parliament. It switched then to two-thirds before the bill was introduced, which is actually a very high threshold internationally. That's, that's quite un unusual. Um, originally, um, the, the power over whether something was going to be a confidence vote, all the stuff in Clause 2, the main clause of the bill, mm -hmm. was under the control of certificates issued by the Speaker of the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. There were then arguments about how this would politicise the Speaker. The Lord's Constitution Committee uh, said that there was strong evidence that the government's proposals have not been properly thought through. They issued quite a damning report. Poor Mark Harper had to appear in front of them. Um, the whole of Clause 2 got taken out during the Lord's um, stages and replaced with a completely different mechanism, which had not been scrutinised in the House of Commons. And prior to publication, needless to say, there was no green paper, no white paper, no uh, pre-legislative scrutiny. It is a quirk of the process in the House of Commons for the scrutiny of constitutional legislation, which goes to the floor of the House, that there isn't even the basic evidence taking that you get in a public bill committee on most things. Mm. So, um, you know, legislate in haste, repent at leisure. Um, we need to do it better next time. And one of the reasons why, you know, some of the problems with the 14-day period and so on, I think were actually introduced as a result of that rather poor process. I completely agree with Mark. We need to sit down and think really carefully this time in the light of experience and international experience and where we're trying to get to uh, and make it better with new legislation, not worse. Can I, can I just come back on a couple of those points? So on the, on the two-thirds, I've said I don't know where the 55% came from because I wasn't involved in those discussions, <laughs> but the, the two-thirds um, wasn't a magic number. It was basically uh, uh, trying to get to a number that recognised the principle that a single party shouldn't be able to just call the election itself because otherwise it seemed rather pointless. So we, we kind of did go back and look at mm. what was a, a number which broadly would in most cases have meant that the majority party couldn't have called an early election by itself and that was where we ended up mm. in two thirds. It broadly meant that all recent governments wouldn't have been able to do that themselves, although, as you said, it could have passed a piece of legislation. Uh, I'm going to just push back a bit on the, on the process mm -hmm. uh, a bit, because um, actually, first of all, the House of Lords always criticises the House of Commons for scrutiny, and even, even when you take bills through pre-legislative scrutiny and you adopt every single recommendation that the Select Committee makes, um, and you do that, and you have ample days where Parliament runs, the House of Commons runs out of time to debate something. The House of Lords still says this bill hasn't been properly scrutinised and it requires the House of Lords to do it properly because that's just what they do, right? And it's slightly irritating when you've that done all That doesn't mean it isn't sometimes true. It's right? sometimes true. <laughs> the problem is they say even when you've done all of the things that best practice would suggest you do, they still say it because that <laughs> is why they feel they have to exist. Um, on, the, on the point about, what I want to say on the confidence point, just to be clear, there was a real confusion about this. The, the, the bit in the Act about confidence was specifically about in what circumstances would an election be triggered. It wasn't a comprehensive set of rules about when governments would lose the confidence of Parliament and have to go. It was about in what circumstances would an election be triggered. And all the debate we had last year, which was why I, I raised the point about leader of the opposition, not in a party sense, but it was part of 
quite a lot of the politics. <coughs> it is possible in our system for there to be a change of government without an election. Um, but, but that presupposes that the leader of the opposition is a person who is both acceptable to their own party and also broadly acceptable to a majority of people in Parliament. And one of the things that I think caused a lot of the debate last year, and I, I don't think this is a terribly controversial point now, is that the leader of the opposition wasn't an acceptable Prime Minister to a majority of members of his own parliamentary party, and he was toxic to all of the other opposition parties. It was very clear, part of the reason, I'm guessing, why the Liberal Democrats um, and the SNP behaved in the way they did when they basically supported an early election was because neither of them were prepared to put Jeremy Corbyn into power and they wouldn't support a government led by him. Now that is a that is probably, certainly in my memory, the first time that a leader of the opposition has been so toxic that people in his own party didn't want him to be Prime Minister, even though subsequently a few weeks later many of them campaigned to do exactly that. But that is something we haven't anticipated, but it's also not an integral part of the act, and people did elide the confidence piece that would have triggered an election and confidence in general, mm -hmm. and, and mushed those two things together, and I think it's worth, if, if the Institute did something, it'd be worth just drawing those things apart. They are different things. The act was about how you bring parliaments to an end and have elections. It wasn't about when governments come to an end and the decisions Parliament might make about an alternative executive. Mm. I mean, it certainly did become an issue. I spent a lot of last year trying to explain that conventions on no confidence still existed despite the Act, but it did get to the point at which there was a belief uh, in our parts of our political class that the only way you could bring down a government was using the Fixed-Term Parliament Act because it was the only legally watertight way of doing it. But that leads us into a whole conversation about conventions. We'll get into that. First of all, Matthew, I just want to ask, uh, 55%, was that you? Um, <laughs> but more importantly, I mean, again, broadening this out, is this something about the sort of majoritarian uh, <coughs> culture of our parliament mm -hmm. and, you know, the ways it does it uh, disfavour, as it were, smaller parties? Is that one of the reasons why the Liberal Democrats needed to do something to try and protect them? because we're so used to this two-party, first-past-the-post system. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm not going to lay claim to 55%. I won't, won't name who, who was. Um, uh, but I think... So, yes, to answer your question, I think, you know, we've heard sort of reference to the supermajority, and, I think, you know, it is clear currently that's not a kind of viable sort of way forward. But if you're thinking kind of, you know, again, what I said earlier, where were Liberal Democrats, and obviously this is pretty fanciful given current political climate, but direction of travel leads you to the constitution, to things that do get embedded in supermajorities. And so yes, of course it was part of that kind of design, you know, designed to sort of protect us. Um, but I think also, and this is where the, the sort of the, th the elements of the bill do have a logic in terms of why they sit together, at least from sort of a smaller party's perspective of, you know, there was concern for us as not just in the way we've talked about, about, you know, the PMB after triggering an election, but also things being not mar notwithstanding Mark's very fair point about eliding confidence and calling an election, um, the PM deciding things were a vote of confidence on a particular policy 
um, where there hadn't necessarily been collective agreement inside the coalition or, or it'd been set aside or whatever. Um, and, and as a smaller party, you potentially inside a coalition, not necessarily that coalition, but future coalitions, you, you need to have room to be able to disagree without the PM being able to say, well, this is a vote of confidence, it might lead to an election, or this is a reason to trigger an election if we're not going to use the term confidence. Um, so I think for kind of smaller parties, that, that predictability is important. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, Mark's point about the, you know, the sort of, unelectability inside the commons of uh, the well current leader of the opposition you know that was in a sense also sort of almost unforeseeable because um, I think Mark's right you know in most other scenarios you know I think if you know it was completely hypothetical but if during the 2010-2015 coalition the Prime Minister had been threatening something as irresponsible as a no-deal Brexit um, then Liberal Democrat parliamentarians would have considered seriously about changing, changing the government without an election in should there have been such a kind of irresponsible act because the then leader of the opposition, Ed Miliband, you know, whatever his faults, was not, I think, you know, from our point of view, can't speak for the SNP, such a kind of illegitimate actor. Um, so the Fixed-Term Parliament Act and other devices that sort of have a supermajority protection, yeah, they do empower smaller parties inside a, par inside a parliament. And yeah, of course, that was part of the motivation. Um, but if, but you know, I think to the point that we've heard about, you know, why the supermajority thing feels so out, sort of out of line now is that once you're back into, you know, comfortable working majority one-party situations, um, and you don't have any kind of sort of constitution protection, then you know, I mean, makes point about sort of international comparisons. You know, I think that's completely fair. That, that's why I would argue there should be something that keeps the role of Parliament. But we are highly unusual mm. in the rest of our settlement. Um, so it wouldn't be surprising that we end up being unusual in this respect. I, I would not regard that as a good outcome from my sort of political philosophy perspective. But it's not, neither do I see it surprising. It's, it's sort of logical. Okay, Raphael, I do want to come back to you on the question of conventions. But I'm going to grab a few questions from the audience first. There are a couple and a, a Graham Cowrie at the back. If you could, Graham, we are being live streamed, so if you could say who you are, that would be great. Graham Cowie, House Commons <coughs> Library. Thinking about what the legislation will have to specify, given that bare repeal doesn't bring us back to the status quo ante, how long should the maximum term of a parliament be? And should that depend upon whether there has been an early general election before it? Okay, and next at the front here. Thank you, Robert Craig. Thanks for the shout-out, Raphael. Um, my Modern Review article is available. For, if you email me, I didn't send it along yet. Anyone who wants to read it, happy to do that. Um, in terms of reviving the prerogative through bare repeal, yes, a bare repeal would fail, but an express revival would work. Section 16 of the Interpretation Act says you can't, if you repeal an act, then nothing that wasn't enforced comes back to life unless expressly said so. So it is possible to do it if we want to. Um, in terms of the idea that it's been extinguished, Benyon on statutory interpretation, which is the definitive account for many people, describes it as an analogy of a rug on floorboards. Once you remove the rug, the boards reappear. So the idea that you can extinguish the prerogative is also, in my view, mistaken. And finally, on the uh, ripple effect of the confidence, well, the, the confidence doctrine, the problem with saying that you, you, have, you put the confidence doctrine into statute is that you, you create real confusion as to the effect 
of a loss of confidence if you can't have a general election. That's why the prime, and, and finally, the prime minister's power to call in the general election is being sort of assumed that that's bad, but the prime minister has the confidence of the commons. They are the tip of the spear. If that's the, the, the idea that they shouldn't have the power to call an election, it, it needs to be argued for. It's not by no means obvious that, that's, that it's wrong for the prime minister to be able to call a general election. The, the, the reason it's, it's entirely reasonable, in my view, is because they have a democratic accountability immediately at the hands of the electorate for that decision. So the idea that it's in principle wrong for the Prime Minister to have that power is, needs, to, needs a lot more argument in, in, my, in my submission. Okay, and then uh, at the back there, just thank you. Uh, Alex Allen, a former civil servant. I, I'm interested in what the views would be if there was um, a statute with a power for the Prime Minister to call elections, partly picking up Meg's point, what would be the advantage, I mean, or should it include a power for the Prime Minister to nominate a particular motion on something different <coughs> as an issue of confidence, so that if that was lost, an election would automatically be called? That's a good point. Raphael, I'm going to start with you on... All three of those, um, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, I, mean, I, I absolutely agree with Robert that express revival of the prerogative is, is possible. Um, and this would be saying in a, a repeal or whatever that the prerogative is now restored? Basically that, yeah. I mean, I, constitutional lawyers will debate whether that is truly a prerogative power or it's actually a statutory power masquerading as a prerogative power. Um, but I think the only circumstances in which that could ever conceivably matter is if the exercise of the power were judicially reviewed on the basis that the courts take a slightly different approach to reviewing prerogative powers and reviewing statutory powers. And that is a scenario that's constitutionally wackier even than anything that we've seen over the past two years. I mean, that's sort of beyond a constitutional lawyer's wildest dreams. So um, you're saying it could happen? <laughs> um, we can hope. Um, but I, I do want to pick up this point about the ripple effect, as Robert puts it, of the FTPA on confidence conventions. Um, because I, I think, you know, Mark is absolutely right, and people have made this point a lot, that, okay, confidence conventions were supposed to be entirely untouched by the FTPA, um, because it's only about calling general elections. It's not about when prime ministers lose confidence or when they have to resign. Um, and, you know, we, we've said that plenty as well. The Public Affairs and Constitution, the, the Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee has said it. But the fact is that governments have a big incentive to ignore that advice. Um, and conventions only work if there's some level of buy-in to them. And there's a really big incentive on any prime minister to say, no, that's not a vote of no confidence. That really important vote that I lost, I don't have to resign. Um, so however much we say the FTPA didn't touch that, it's created a sort of impression in Westminster that confidence conventions have changed. And once you create an impression among all of the people that, that conventions are supposed to operate on that the convention has changed, well then, to be honest, that basically amounts to the, to the convention changing. Um, so so I, I do think there is a genuine problem there that needs to be addressed. Now, you know, one way of addressing it um, would be to sort of statutorily I mean, actually statutorily codify this uh, confidence issue, uh, as that third question suggested. I, I, don't see, I honestly don't see the point in doing that. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it, it has traditionally been the case uh, that a prime minister can say, uh, this is an issue of confidence, you know, because it's such an important 
policy or that certain set-piece votes like the budget and the Queen's speech have been issues of confidence. And if the government loses, then either uh, the Prime Minister tenders the government's resignation uh, or the Prime Minister seeks a dissolution uh, or the Prime Minister could do both. Um, and I, I don't see why that essential position should change uh, once we get rid of the FTPA and, and restore some kind of executive power of dissolution. Meg. Um, <clears throat> I don't really want to come between the lawyers. Um, <laughs> I think uh, on, on um, Robert's point about the confidence of the Commons, perhaps, and why there needs to be a stronger case made for the Prime Minister getting back this unfettered power, I just don't I just don't really buy that. I mean, if, <coughs> if the Prime Minister has the confidence of the Commons and the Commons is wholly behind the Prime Minister, I frankly don't see what the difficulty is with the Prime Minister going to the Commons and saying, OK, folks, let's have a general election. Um, you know, there's a degree of defensiveness, I think, in denying the Prime Minister, the, in, in denying Parliament the opportunity to clearly demonstrate that it is supporting the Prime Minister on this matter. Um, I mean, you know, we don't allow prime ministers to legislate freely on the basis that they've got the Commons confidence. Mm. Um, you know, there are times when whether the Commons support is there or not is put to the test on a regular basis on all sorts of things. I'm not sure why this um, should be any different. And in, in the case of last summer, I mean, one of the difficulties, well, there are lots of difficulties that have been shown up in the case of last summer. Um, which were complicated by a number of factors. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the Brexit deadline and, and, all, and all of that was hanging over everything. Uh, but we also had um, a Prime Minister who had been in office for one day before Parliament broke up for its summer recess, and then a long summer recess. So, you know, there's a question of when does the Prime Minister get to demonstrate that he has the Commons confidence. So, as well, despite what Mark says, and I do agree with much of what Mark said, um, there were quite lively discussions going on over the, over the summer about the possibility of bringing down the government. I mean, whether they would have, that would have happened or not, we, we don't know. But, you know, one of the problems with the 14-day period is that it doesn't, well, lots of problems with the 14-day period, but one of them is that it doesn't actually require Parliament to be sitting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are times when I think a vote in Parliament on something positive, and I think it's interesting, David Nartsford is sitting here, and I don't know what he thinks on how we deal with the 14-day period, but my, my instinct on the 14-day period is, you're quite right, it needed to be left to politics, but that politics probably needed to be in some way codified in the rules of the House of Commons. Uh, it was a standing order question, not a statute question, but there were no rules. It wasn't clear what the process would be to get to a new government. But for all of these things, the Commons has to be sitting. And you could imagine a time when the Prime Minister calls, uh, calls an election when the Commons isn't sitting and it is in doubt whether he has the confidence. So I would say just go to the Commons and ask them whether they approve. Mark. So uh, without, perhaps people do this all the time, but I will avoid the temptation just to repeat stuff. Uh, <laughs> the point I would come back to about how we, we're clearly going to make a change, we've made mm. a commitment to do it, but how we do it, and I think it's just worth thinking about events of the last few months as well, there's an argument, I think, I, I don't have any particular problem with the Prime Minister having the power, and, and I think Robert makes a very good point, if you've got the confidence of the Commons, you, you are going to just test it with the public, and if you've made a shocking misjudgment 
about what the public's views are, you're going to find out quite quickly. Given the way, and I, I personally don't feel this was appropriate, but it's the judgment they made and we accepted it. Given what happened with the Supreme Court's judgment about the advice the Prime Minister gave Her Majesty about prorogation, I think there may be some merit from the Prime Minister's point of view in having a vote in Parliament rather than just going back to the prerogative power. Because the danger is that because we changed it, and I accept the argument that you could expressly revive the prerogative power, although arguably it's not a prerogative power then, we have a theoretical debate about that. The danger is, as a Conservative, I don't want the, um, the monarch to be dragged into politics. And we saw, um, with the prorogation advice that she accepted, properly accepted as a constitutional monarch, she, there was an attempt by some people to drag her into that debate. And I think there is a danger that if you just had the prerogative power, given the way that the Supreme Court has now behaved, if the Prime Minister wanted to call an election and used a prerogative power, a revived prerogative power, um, whether it would succeed or not is not the point. It could be challenged in court. And I don't think that would be at all helpful. So there's an argument that if you go back to you know, having a simple majority, for example. The Prime Minister makes the decision, it is his decision, but because Parliament has supported that decision, I think in those circumstances it is absolutely clear that the Supreme Court would not entertain um, trying to overturn a decision of Parliament, whereas they have demonstrated they will entertain and overturn a decision of the Prime Minister in terms of the advice that the Prime Minister gives to Her Majesty. So there is something we ought to just think about, given our Constitution is, a, unlike some countries, and I personally think this is a benefit of our Constitution, it's a living, breathing thing that changes, we do need to think about not just you know, whether a, a legal challenge will succeed, but I, I want to keep the, the, the monarch and our Constitution monarch out of that political debate. So there's an argument that if you want the Prime Minister to have the power to call an election, for that not to be challenged in court and not, therefore, to have that argument about his advice to the Queen, it might be in his interest, mm. not just this Prime Minister's interest, but any Prime Minister's interest, mm. to actually put it, or have Parliament make that decision on his initiative, because I think that then does keep the courts out of it, because I don't think any court, well, any, any court that decided to try and overturn the expressed will of Parliament, I think would be a court not long for this world. So. Um, I think that would be perhaps a better check and a better outcome than just trying to revive the status quo ante, perhaps. I'll be brief. I'll give a brief answer to the question at the back, as no one else has. Uh, I, I'm happy with, with five years, but, and it's a big caveat, of course, from my perspective, but with a, you know, a nice a sort of off-cycle uh, elected second chamber um, to hold them to account and keep the feet to the fire. And again, that, that was the logic of the package. <coughs> Um, and, you know, again, to the kind of, you know, what are, what are sort of norms for comparable countries, you know, you'd say that is broadly it. Clearly, in this case, for four years, you know, that's obviously a norm in lots of other countries. Um, to, to the question down here, I mean, I think it's, a, it's an interesting one. For, for me, I, I actually think Mark's kind of logic and argument about the core, I, I find very compelling and, and probably, you know, yes, it almost would be logical for, for any sensible prime minister to do that. But I would also come from a different perspective of just a kind of straightforward, well, you know, ultimately we elect parliament, not the executive. Um, and so if a parliament is going to be curtailed, it should be parliament itself that's making that choice. 
Um, now, it may well be effectively a rubber stamp, um, so be it. Um, but, you know, we elect MPs, we elect them for good reason, genuinely do a good job. Um, uh, you know, it should be up to them to decide whether the Prime Minister has made a good case for the Parliament to come to a premature end. Um, if they have, he has an election. If they haven't, as we saw, then, you know, he has to go and make his case again. Okay, let's do a new round of questions. Um, okay, I'm going to go, uh, sorry, here in front. Right. Paul Evans. Um, Jonathan Sumption yesterday wisely advised us not to make a constitution in the light of the last nine months' <laughs> um, peculiar events and think a bit broad, more broadly. Um, so it's only twice, I think, in... 20th century that uh, a confidence motion brought down a government, 24 and 79. 79 one is a bit of an exception. It would have come, it would have finished anyway um, a few weeks later. Um, so it's not really, I feel, the issue at the heart that we should, all, that we should spend all our time thinking about. Um, and part of the reason for fixed term parliament, I think the argument was, was to take away incumbency advantage. And I I wonder if the panel thinks that is still a valid and worthwhile consideration in, in the <coughs> fixed-term parliaments. Um, on the, just briefly on the repeal and revival of it, I mean, I think it would be incredibly unwise for Parliament to leave the legal situation for constitutional lawyers to argue with them. And they might as well just get on and do something that everybody understands. Good points. Um, behind them, please. James Kidner. I work for a technology company called Rebellion. Um, I came here really for a sort of history lesson because this was a fairly major constitutional change and I didn't feel I knew much about it. And what I'm struck by is that no one on the panel has really gone back further than 2010. And I'm intri intrigued to know whether there had been earlier discussion of this because it seems to me that it's all about tactics, so it's all been about tactics and none of it's been about strategy. So a sort of dig down into any antecedents in this living, breathing mechanism that is the Constitution would be really helpful. Thank you. Okay, and then we've got two in front. I'm going to take both of them if you could be quick. Uh, you know, just to pick up on the uh, point uh, uh, made earlier about in incumbency advantage and, and also just responding quickly to what um, two points, the uh, point that Robert made about what's the problem with the Prime Minister simply taking a decision when he'd be regarded as the endorsed by, by a majority. There need to be two answers to that. One, picking up on what the Speaker uh, over there said earlier, is that uh, you, it gives an incumbency advantage because it allows the Prime Minister to choose, and we all remember this from uh, political history before 2010, the choice of an election date being motivated entirely by political considerations and by the opinion polls. Um, and it's very difficult to defend that as a matter of good constitutional uh, practice. You also have uncertainty which affects the, you know, or the civil service of a good government so when an election is actually going to be, which can be quite paralyzing in the last five, in the last five years of previous, uh, last couple of years of the five-year term of previous parliaments. <coughs> I mean, there's an, then an interesting question is whether if you, because you can't entrench Extern Parliament's Act is always possible, as we've seen, to overturn that by a parliamentary majority. And the interesting question looking forward is if you had a system where the Prime Minister could choose, could, could go for an early election but needed to go to Parliament in order to get it, that would in effect 
make it more difficult than it used to be for the Parliament, for the Prime Minister to go earlier, whether it would affect the sort of co convention. I mean, it, it had been understood up until 2010 that it really was a decision for the Prime Minister, and nobody ever turned a hair if the Prime Minister decided to call an election after three and a half or four years because the polls were quite good. But if you actually required the Prime Minister to go to Parliament, whether that in effect would okay, make it much more difficult. And on. I think that's a, that's a question looking forward, but I'd quite like you. to know people's thoughts on it. Very, in, very briefly, if you could. Week, uh, a minister said, neither well, so we, uh, William Wallace, I'm uh, in the fuzzy second chamber that Mark <laughs> Harbour dislikes so much. Um, a minister to say last week, Mark, now that we have returned to the normal relationship between Parliament and government, very interesting comment, uh, the question, what is the normal relationship between Parliament and government is, <laughs> is at the back of some of this. Uh, I think part of that assumption is that we have now returned to a two-party system. And that's also a difficult question. If you assume that Scotland and Northern Ireland are going to remain within the Union, because if they do, and if there are large regional parties represented in Parliament, it doesn't take too many seats in England to be held by third or fourth parties for the government to lose its majority. And then the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act or something becomes much more relevant again. So I really want to ask you, what do you think the normality to which we may or may not have returned is? Okay, that, that might be a whole new session. <laughs> um, okay, panel, I'm going to go this way very quickly, if you could, because we're running out of time. So feel free to answer as many comments and questions as you can or not. Uh, okay, so I'll just pick up two themes uh, from that round of questions, particularly from the first. Why are we getting so hung up on confidence when no confidence votes don't bring down governments very often? Reasonable question, but there are, uh, governments do win confidence votes much more often than they lose them. And you know, if you look through the 20th century, all the times the government has made something a vote of confidence in order to drive its agenda through the House, you know, that, that happens quite a lot. Um, and so, and, and you might think that that's quite an important mechanism because it basically, um, it allows government to say to its own backbenchers, you know, it's squeaky bum time, either agree with our agenda or you're letting the others in or we're getting an election. It avoids the kind of paralysis situation that you had last year that a lot of people objected to. So that's, that's something to think about in terms of the value of that confidence process. Um, the FDPA, yes, took away, was supposed to take away incumbency advantage, and there is some evidence that calling early general elections does give incumbents incumbency advantage. Um, there's, a, there's some research by an academic called Petra Schleiter that shows that I think it gives a 6% seat bonus to call an early, early, early election over and above getting to the end of your term. Uh, but the issue is you can always just repeal the FTPA in respect of this election and get your election with 50% plus one of MPs. So I think there's a question, <coughs> does it genuinely, well, that's true, but I just wonder whether the House of Lords would ever say no. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wondered, did the FT, could any piece of legislation genuinely get rid of that incumbency advantage or do, just, do we just have to accept that it's there? Okay. Um, I mean, I think to this point about kind of civil service planning and kind of good <coughs> governments, I think, you know, that was kind of the classical defence, as it were, of, of what was introduced in 2010. It was, you know, we've got five years, Mark alluded to it earlier, you know, take the hard decisions. Actually, I wonder if you look at kind of some of the stuff that this government has said, including the Prime Minister's Chief Advisor, kind of on the record, was like, we've got five years, we can do some hard decisions now, you know, can do an SDSR, can do a spending review, all these kind of things. Um, and, you know, there is a case for that. Um, 
but you know, ultimately, that has not; those have not been the factors which have been at play for how long a parliament lasts. Um, you know, should they be? Quite possibly. Um, ha have they been, as far as any of us can recall? Sadly, not. Um, on, on the kind of incumbency advantage, yeah, you know, that was definitely a, a kind of you know part of the calculation for us. Um, I've, I haven't seen that evidence. It's interesting. I'm, I'm slightly, I'm slightly less. I can't think of a British general election that's actually been sort of hinged. You know, where you say the outcome has been dependent on the PM calling it early. Um, in fact, arguably one where they got it wrong, of course. Um, so, you know, it's not obvious that that's made a material difference, but that, that was part of the calculation. And then finally, to the, to, you know, the interesting question about kind of strategy. Um, and forgive me for sort of labouring the point. I think on our side, there, you know, there, there was a strategy on this. Uh, it has failed miserably, um, which was namely that this is one brick in a, you know, a written constitution or a, a whole set of constitutional forms that could see supermajorities being the norm, that would see, you know, ideally, proportional representation, elected second chamber, federal systems, all of these kind of things. And then this does fit together. Um, we haven't got that. There's no likelihood of that happening anytime soon. Um, although hopefully we'll uh, pivot to a new norm for William that means that perhaps there is some strategy to this. And just on the prehistory question, I mean, most of the stuff in the archives is about the role of the Queen in granting a dissolution. What would be the circumstances in which she, she would say no? So that is the big question that we face now is do we revert back to that? Meg? Um, Incumbency advantage, yes, definitely is an argument in favour of fixed terms. There are other arguments in favour of fixed terms as well. Certainty for the civil service, certainty for electoral administrators, the difficulty of clashing with the timetable for the devolved elections. Yes, there are lots of arguments for fixed terms, but the fact is the recent period has shown that they cannot hold in a system where you have parliamentary sovereignty and, as you say, the key word, entrench. No means of entrenching it. In most other constitutions, the Constitution would set the fixed term, uh, and that sits above ordinary law, and you wouldn't get into the situation. But, you know, that's the situation that we have. And if we stick with parliamentary sovereignty, um, then, you know, we're stuck with things which are a bit uh, flexible. And I think that had circumstances been different over the last few years, the fixed terms might have stuck. Even the two-thirds majority might have stuck. But, you know, we have seen them break. Um, and having had an early general election bill once, you know, that will become a thing that could be pursued again. So some of this stuff is just gone now, uh, and we have to pick up what we can and pick up the most important principles and try and, um, and, and, try and codify them. I think William Wallace asked a really important point about what is the new normal, um, uh, and I think the answer is we don't know. Look, over the last... Over the last 10 years, we've had a coalition government, we've had a narrow majority government, we've had a minority government, and now we've got a large majority government. And this is one of the challenges for people who are making constitutions, not just on this, but on all the things that might be considered by the Conservative Constitutional Reform Commission, that we have to come up with solutions which will be flexible and suitable for all of these different potential circumstances, because we don't know what we're going to face and that is a strong argument for what Mark Harper has said about the need to really think through carefully what we're doing on this and make sure that it is robust to future circumstances as best we can. Mark? Um, let me just pick up a few of those points. Uh, on the confidence question, I think Raphael's right, although um, there may not be very many examples of it, I think it is central to people's thinking. For, for those that don't know, the, um, in the uh, Government Chief's Whips, office in Downing Street. There is a, um, the original 
telling slip from 1979, which has got the 311, 310 um, fateful result on it. Uh, and it does rather... The fact it's there... It, it does rather remind you when you're the government chief whip about the importance of winning votes and it's only winning <laughs> votes uh, that keeps you in power. Um, and, and that's not a trivial point. I mean, in our system, and I think that's why it's worth just thinking in a parliamentary system as opposed to the US presidential system with a separation of powers, you know, you do need to keep um, uh, uh, the confidence of parliament. Um, on the... Um, I thought a very well-made point from, from Paul was the point about not being overly influenced by the events of the last few months. So I think actually a part of the point about taking some time is if you made a decision now, it would inevitably be heavily influenced, overly influenced, by what's happened over the last six months and Brexit and the challenges that the Prime Minister faced in getting an election last autumn and the result of that election, and that might skew where we ended up. So actually, I think taking a bit of time and maybe making these decisions, having looked at a report and taking some time to think about it sort of in the middle of this parliament is probably wise, and then we'll take a more balanced view looking at, at history. Um, I think Picking up William's point, I'll just do that and then the final point. William's point about what's normal, I think probably what was meant was um, rather than the government being in charge, more the House of Commons being in charge um, and the elected chamber and the fact that the government has a majority. It means ultimately the government will get its way because it has a majority in Parliament. Um, and yes... House of Lords will influence legislation in terms of its traditional role of improving the drafting and fixing obvious flaws, but on the fundamental political arguments, the House of Commons will get its way, as I think is, is proper. Um, you mean the government? The House of Commons, the elected House, will get its way, um, which I think is always worth the House of Lords remembering. Um, <laughs> time the House of Lords decides it's not going to accept that, it won't be around for very long. Um, but it always has remembered that, which is why it's, it's still there, because that relationship is there. And, and I think it's, we tested that over the last few weeks um, on important principles. Uh, on the point about um, what's normal, um, and I think William's point was right and Meg's was right about you know, all the different scenarios, it is worth just thinking about one of the, I, th I think one of the advantages of our system over many others is that it's flexible. And I always have this argument when people talk about having a written constitution. We, we do have a written constitution. It's just not in a single document. It's in many documents. And we tried when I was um, the constitutional reform minister, um, I and a fantastic team of officials uh, and the then cabinet secretary put together the cabinet manual, which was an attempt to take... It wasn't, new it wasn't new information, it was existing information, existing conventions uh, that existed in lots of different places and pull them together into a single document to say, these are the rules as everyone understands them. And we only put things in it that were broadly accepted and understood. And I think that was a, there was a sensible process to do that. But I think part of our merit of our system is it's flexible. Uh, and actually, it can change to reflect... 
the changing relationship between different parts of the United Kingdom with devolution, with uh, uh, you know, our, our new relationship now with the European Union, where we're outside it and we're going to build a relationship to develop all our shared interests. And actually, I would argue, if you look at our history, coming back to a very sensible point about history, one of the reasons why Britain, United Kingdom, I would argue, is one of the most successful liberal democracies on the planet is because we have a system which is flexible and responds to changing circumstances and has proven to be much more successful than more rigid systems which actually don't respond very well and then you, you have pressures and then they kind of blow up and, and things sort of fall apart. So I suppose one of the things to think about is the extent to which we wish to codify and fix things but actually the extent to which they want to be flexible. And there is an argument that having the Fixed End Parliament Act as an underpinning was fine, but actually it was also fine for Parliament to make a decision last year when I think there was a general sense that it couldn't go on like that and something needed to happen. That The decision that Parliament took to have an election, to give the public an opportunity to say, are we going to deliver the results of the referendum in 2016 or are we not? Make your mind up, people. Uh, that ability to make that decision and then have an election, make a decision, have a government with a majority and get on with stuff. I think, frankly, I, I found on the doorstep, even people that weren't Conservatives just wanted a government that could actually do some governing, uh, even if they weren't necessarily going to agree with every single thing it did. And, and our system demonstrated, painful, but it actually got there. We had an election, the public made the decision, and ultimately in a democracy, people make the decisions and they get the governments they want and things that people vote for should happen. And it, it's been a bit bumpy over the last few years, but people voted to leave the European Union and people voted for a government to get that job done. And that's why we are where we are. Why we are where we are. Right, that sounds like a good point to finish on. Um, Meg has pointed out we should mention, of course, there's a statutory requirement to review the Act this year anyway. Uh, so somebody is going to be looking at this in a uh, lot more depth and we wait to see what happens with the government's constitution committee. And the House of Lords constitution committee is doing an inquiry on it at the moment. So yeah. if the government is holding back a little bit, which we sounds like we all think is healthy, there will be lots of reviewing happening this year. Yeah, so plenty more opportunity to discuss it. Uh, thank you all for coming. I guess watch this space and uh, we will see you all again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. And thank you to my panel.